Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Sit down here, make it a little bit more relaxed, maybe. Make Lydia nervous being over here beside her. That's right, I sit on the front too. Is that what it is? Just be near me? Okay. Okay, so 1 Samuel 15, we've been looking into uh, Israel's relationship with their kings. And uh, started several weeks ago where Israel demanded a king. And what was their reasons for wanting a king? Okay, be like everybody else, right? Be like other nations. They wanted somebody to lead them into battles. They weren't happy with uh, God, which was not visible. It was kind of like uh, whenever Moses went up to the top of the mountain, right? And the people of Israel said, we no longer have a visible leader. We don't know what happened to Moses, so up, make us gods, right? And so they made a golden cow and said, well, this golden cow can go before us. But they wanted something tangible, something they can see. And we're still guilty of that a lot of times. It's We're trying to imagine a god or try to make a god in our image or whatnot or something that we can relate to or something a little bit more tangible for us, right? Mm-hmm. So to lead them into battle, to be like the other people around them, what else? I didn't realize there was a quiz, right? Okay. Another thing they wanted someone to, to judge them, right? Mm-hmm. So they're wanting uh, basically someone to take them by the hand and tell them what's right and wrong, right? And uh, parallel for that today is still a lot of people aren't comfortable with just having a relationship with God, an unseen God, one that uh, takes a little bit of effort on their behalf to follow. But instead, it's easier just to submit to somebody and get a set of rules, right? You know, they want a guru. They want a, uh, either a pastor or some online preacher or somebody to say, okay, you do these things. And they want to come to somebody and, and allow somebody else to be the one to make all the decisions and somebody else to tell them what to do. For people who claim to desire independence so much, we don't like the comfort of independence, do we? We outsource our thinking so easily. And so they said, we don't want to have to uh, be accountable to God. We want to be accountable to a man. We want a man to judge us. Y'all give up now? Okay, well, what about uh, the reasons they had to do with Samuel? His sons were wicked. Uh, they were taking bribes, right? Perverting justice. And Samuel was old. They said, Samuel, you're not going to be here for very long. Your sons are wicked. We want to be like the nations around us. We want a, a king that can lead us to battle. We want someone who can judge us. And so God gave them exactly what they wanted. They gave them, He gave them not his pick for them, not a man that was like God that would lead them the way that God would, but he gave them the desires of their heart, their wicked hearts. And they gave him Saul. And Saul was wealthy, he was good-looking, he was uh, very strong and warlike, he was head and shoulders above everyone else, right? And so by outward appearances, they saw him and they were inspired. They said, this is exactly what we were looking for, God. 
And then last week, what we got into is we saw what kind of leader he actually was. And we started seeing his downfall. Uh, whenever he was originally anointed, he kind of went back home and that was it. And then God had uh, put his spirit on Saul. And whenever trouble broke out, then he rose to the occasion, right? He was being led of the spirit. He was being led of God. And God showed that he could work a, uh, a mighty victory through Saul while Saul was relying on God. But then... What we saw last week is that things quieted down. Saul had 2,000 men with him. Jonathan had 1,000 with him, right? Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, uh, Jonathan took his 1,000 because Saul wasn't doing anything. He said, we want someone who's going to lead us into battle. After the first battle was over with, Saul just kind of uh, stagnated. He wasn't doing anything. And Jonathan wasn't going to sit still and do nothing. He knew that they had the promises of God. They had the power of God. And so Jonathan took his thousand men, went and killed a whole battalion of the Philistines. And then Saul took credit for it. And the Philistines got mad. And they mounted a huge invasion. And it says that they were like the number of sand on the seashore. Coming in and the people of Israel were then afraid. Their great leader was now shaking in his boots, and everyone was going away and hiding. And Saul had two different ways that he could have handled things, or that he should have handled things, didn't do either of those. Okay, He could have waited on Samuel, or he could have uh, remembered all of the great things that God had already done for them, and he could have been the leader and stood before the troops and rallied the troops. He could have said, remember what God did for Moses, and remember what God did for uh, Joshua, remember all the victories that God has done and the victories over this group and over that group and God can give us a victory this time. Come on, let's go fight and relied on God. But he didn't do that. He didn't wait on Samuel and instead he intruded on the priest's office. He said, we need to have a sacrifice so that God will be on our side that somehow going through this religious motion is going to get God's favor. And so he was using it very much like a superstition. Uh, God was his spare tire, his lucky rabbit's foot, whatever. And so he said, I've got to go and offer up a sacrifice so that God will give us victory, even though he as a king did not have uh, the authority to offer up a sacrifice. Uh, what was required for someone to offer the sacrifices? Priesthood of the line of Levi, right? Of the line of Aaron. And he was a Benjamite. And so he uh, he did something that really typifies Saul. He did something that appeared to be good, but he went about it the wrong way and for the wrong reasons. And a lot of people think that, well, it doesn't matter how I do it or what I do as long as or it doesn't matter why I do it as long as I do the right thing, right? And we can do the right thing the wrong way, and that's what he did. And so anyway, um, because he offered up this sacrifice, while all of the people were hiding and everything, Samuel appeared right as he did that, right? If he would have waited just a few minutes longer, then everything would have went through right, but he was relying on himself. He was doing it his own way. He was relying on... Uh, Anything and everything but God. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, Samuel came and pronounced judgment on Saul. 
and they didn't go to battle. There was no fighting. There was They were oppressed by the Philistines for several years, and so they wanted a king that would give them victory over their enemies, that was going to lead them to battle. This one refused to lead them to battle. They didn't get victory, right? He continued being the coward. He continued being self-willed. And uh, now they're in worse shape than they were before. Now the Philistines are oppressing them, basically holding them as slaves, even though they had their king. It was so bad that they didn't even have any weapons in their possession, and they didn't even have anyone to make the weapons. They had to go to the Philistines even to sharpen their farming implements. So whenever they did finally go to battle, it was like with pitch, pitchforks and ox goads and shovels. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine that army coming? I always think of the, the yeah. scene on Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. They're going after the Beast Castle, and they're going with pitchforks and farming implements and all that. That's what I get for being in household with a bunch of girls watching Disney. But anyway, um, so there was no battle that there could have been. They could have beat the Philistines right then if he would have depended on God, but he didn't do it. And so now they are constantly under the Philistines' watchful eye, constantly oppressed by the Philistines. And so one day, Jonathan's still not happy with just allowing this to go on. And he says, we still have the promises of God. God's able to deliver by many or by few. And so he looks at his armor bearer and says, hey, let's go out and see what God will do. And he says, let's go and reveal ourselves to the Philistines. And if they say, come to us, we'll go to them and we'll take that as a sign from God that he's with us and he's going to give us victory. They killed about 20 men and God used that act of faith that just tipped things in the right direction just because he stepped out in faith, trusting God. God brought about an earthquake. The Philistines turned against one another, started slaughtering one another. And apparently Jonathan and his armor bearer just sat back and watched. That'd be pretty cool, right? And so Saul, sitting underneath his little tree in the distance, trying to hide, uh, hears the ruckus that's going on. And he says, someone must be doing something. Look and see who's missing. He finds out it's Jonathan that's missing. And he says, oh no, Jonathan's going to steal my glory again. And he starts to consult God and then he does away with that idea. He says, forget about it. Things are moving too fast. Let's go. And he tries to jump on the bandwagon finally Mm -hmm. and goes and he makes several stupid decisions. One of them is forbidding the people to eat anything and putting a curse on the people. And because of the way that he handles things, he actually prevents them from having a greater victory. He puts his people in uh, jeopardy. He uh, hinders the, the battle, all these different things. And because of all of these things that he does, um, he's just seen as being ineffective all the way around. Um, after offering up the sacrifice, I forgot to mention this, after offering up the sacrifice, um, God, uh, God gives Samuel a message that he's no longer going to have a... Um, a posterity. He's never no longer going to have a, a king that reigns after him. So his lineage, his kingly line, will end with him. And so that's one of the, the consequences of his actions. And so Saul's just proving to be ineffective all the way around. That brings us to where we're at today in 1 Samuel 15. And I know I did a lengthy introduction there, just kind of a review. But I want us to be familiar with how this is going about. Uh, this is Saul is just a picture of us uh, 
allowing our own human nature, us being guided by the flesh, us doing things, trying to trying to live for God by the power of the flesh, I guess we could say. And we see him just messing up time and time again. And we see all the opportunities that he has for God to do great things through him, for him to be able to uh, be used mightily, but he keeps getting in God's way, really, because of his impatience, because of his flesh, because of his lack of faith. And so whenever we come to chapter 15, God is giving Saul a second chance. Okay? Giving Saul a second chance. So uh, chapter 15, let's go ahead and uh, read just a little bit here. It says, Samuel also said unto Saul, the Lord sent me to be, excuse me, the Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that, that excuse me, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said to the unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For he showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they all came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah unto thou comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse. They destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he is turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and is going about, and passed on, and going down to Gilgal. And Samuel came unto Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. We'll go ahead and stop there for now. So what we have in this passage is Saul is given a second chance. God has given him multiple opportunities to trust God and to obey God, right? To be the representative of God to the people of Israel, to lead the people of Israel to serving God, right? And so as Samuel comes to Saul, he is very carefully laying out what God wants Saul to do, okay? You know how some people you have to like spoon feed them? This is what he is doing with Saul at this moment. And so Samuel says, the Lord sent me. So he's reject, or he's not rejecting. He's um, projecting the authority back to God. He is pointing Saul to where the authority lies. 
And he says, God was the one that sent me. I didn't do this on my own. I wasn't doing this for my own purposes, my own reasoning. God is the one that sent me to anoint you. And he says, therefore, hearken unto the voice of the word of the Lord. He says, this isn't me saying this. This is God saying this. Okay? And so that should be plain to Saul. Okay? This isn't just Samuel's suggestion. This is God's command. And so in verse number two, it says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how that he laid wait for them in the way when they came up from Egypt. Now go smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Spare them not. Slay both man, woman, infant, suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. So here is the command. He brings it down, breaks it down to every individual thing. He says, because of what Amalek did whenever Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. If you remember that story, uh, Moses is leading the people. They come to the area of Amalek. They send uh, ambassadors ahead and say, let us pass through here. We'll go by the king's highway. We won't uh, go to the left or to the right. We won't uh, take anything that's not ours. We'll purchase things of you that we use, all these different things. We're not here for your harm. Just let us pass through. And they refuse, and they send armies out against them. The children of Israel haven't been out of Egypt very long at all, and now this is their first battle whenever they come out. And the children of Amalek actually go and come up from the hindermost parts of them to get those who are weak, those who are slow, those who are young. And so it's very much a cowardly attack on them. It is a predatory attack on them. And because of the way that they even treated the people of Israel, uh, God had uh, given specific command that the people of Amalek would be completely destroyed from the earth. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, uh, as God is giving the, the law the second time for the children of Israel getting ready to enter into the promised land, this is reiterated to them saying, don't forget what Amalek did. And they're going to continue to be a thorn in your side. You're going to continue to have battles with them. And then whenever the time comes, I'm going to raise up someone that is going to wipe them out. That was a promise in Deuteronomy. And God had given them about yeah, several hundred years, right? He'd given them several hundred years. And now at this time, they're no more better than they were before. They're still just as wicked as they were before. And to give us a little bit of an idea, because some people would say, well, it just seems cruel for God to say to destroy the entire people, even down to the women and children, because you usually think, you know, rescue the women and children, right? But to show you how wicked they are, uh, Saul spares them, part of them, and whenever Saul dies on the, on the battlefield at the end of First Samuel, David has went out and he is fighting Israel's enemies, and it's the Amalekites that come and raid Israel, and raid uh, David's city there that him and his soldiers are in, it is the Amalekites that come there and do that and carry off uh, all of David's women and children, all of their everything, that David has to go back and get back. Okay, So the ones that Saul allows to escape here at the end of Saul's life are still causing a problem. If you continue following this through, um, well, no, even right at the end of Saul's life, uh, Saul's killed by the Philistines, right? right. Or, well, he's in battle with the Philistines. Right. He's killed by his own hand. Right. But who is it that tells David about Saul? Anyone remember? The armor bearer is the one that um, Saul said, kill me, and he wouldn't do it. Yes, 
And so Saul killed himself. But the one who came and told David was an Amalekite who claims that he was the one that killed Saul. He said, I stumbled upon Saul and he life was still in him. He was wounded and he begged me to kill him. And so I did. And David said, why did you take it upon yourself to fall on the Lord's anointed? And he killed the Amalekite, right? Because he thought that David would be happy and he wasn't. But apparently the Amalekite was just an opportunist and he was saying, oh, I can enrich myself from this. And apparently he was going through and uh, raiding all of the the spoil off of the soldiers that was killed, and he stumbles upon Saul. And so he takes the crown and he takes the jewelry and all that from Saul and brings it to David. Okay? That was a Malachite. And so the ones that Saul spared here are the ones that carried the word of Saul's death to David. Okay? You continue following it on, you go to the book of Ruth, and Haman was an Agagite. Yes. And I believe that that's a descendant of King Agag that uh, Saul tried to preserve alive here. And so we know what Haman was like toward the children of Israel, right? So the children of uh, Amalek were a perpetual enemy of Israel. They constantly were trying to kill God's people. And God plainly told the people of Israel, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And this was God's judgment upon them. And so God says, I have the authority. I am the righteous judge. I know what's good. You may not understand it, but this is my sentence. And so Saul, I have chosen you to carry out my justice. I have passed sentence And it is up to you to lead your people and go and slay all of the Amalekites. Not just the people, but even all of their animals, all of it has been tainted by their wickedness and by their corruption, and none of it is to be left alive. None of it is to enter into your households. None of it is is to be kept whatsoever. Get rid of it all. And so God made his will abundantly clear, right? He made it very clear. But Saul, whenever he goes with the people of Israel and he fights against them, first thing he does, he does send the, the Kenites away. The Kenites would be the, um, the family of Moses' father-in-law. Moses' father-in-law, remember, Moses marries uh, a uh, Midianite, I believe it is. And so the Kenites would have been his descendants. And so they treated the Israelites good whenever they came out. And uh, anyway, so Saul actually did a good thing here in coming to the land, and he told the Kenites, uh, our beef isn't with you, it's with them. Get out of here so we don't kill you. So he sent them away, and they attacked the Amalekites, but they took Agag alive. Any idea why they kept Agag? No trophy? This is just opinion. I don't have one for once. So they kind of go along with the idea of a trophy as like, hey, I've overcome him and he's going to be, I get to torture him maybe. Are you going to say something? To humiliate him? Okay. 
funny to even if, I mean, just putting myself in that spot, if they kept him alive and everybody else died, that's just a lot of mental torture. I don't know, just the guilt and I always thought that they brought him back to Israel, kind of showing that their victory over the Israelites had gotten the king. Okay, well, that would fit in with uh, Saul's personality of, and it would go along with the whole idea of a trophy, but it would be basically a way for him to brag, right? Mm-hmm. Even whenever Saul dies, the Philistines take his body and Jonathan's body, and they're like uh, putting him on display and everything else, desecrating the bodies and uh, bragging about it, right? Uh, but even whenever we get to the end of this chapter, Agag. Uh, basically begs to be spared. He doesn't want to die. And so it doesn't seem like it was a, a thing of torture if Agag was like, oh man, this is going to be so bad. This is going to be humili- humiliating on me. It's an Eastern culture. It is the honor and shame culture. Okay, And so if he is going to be shamed, if he is going to be embarrassed, if he's going to be humiliated, if he's going to be tortured, he would beg to just be killed, right? But we do find throughout the book of Kings, and this is just me thinking out loud, okay? We do find throughout the book of Kings that there are other kings that save their enemy alive. Okay? Spare their enemy and treat them almost like a friend or an advisor, almost like they're an elite class or something. And so I wonder if maybe it was something like that. Yeah, because he could see in Samuel's face, this man isn't messing around. Saul's yeah. playing around Samuel's not. Yeah. So by this time, Samuel's an old man, but Agag's afraid of him. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he saves Agag alive, and then it says that he, he and the people... It says specifically, verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs. All that was good, but everything that was vile refuse, they destroyed utterly. So they went throughout the the land as they were uh, destroying all of this, and they were picking out, and they were like, Okay, don't like that, don't like that, that's not any good. Let's get rid of all that. Hey, I'd like to have that. That looks good. Hey, this is, Right? And so it even seems like maybe amongst the people, because the people do continue. Like I said, they were there still pillaging and rummaging around whenever Saul died on the battlefield. So that was within Saul's life, right? So there were other people that escaped. And so anyway, they were making decisions that some of this stuff was good after God had already determined that it was all wicked and evil and meant for destruction. And so the application we bring from this is that if we're not careful as humans, if we're not careful as Christians, we will start rationalizing, we'll start judging with our own human minds, our own fleshly minds, the things that God has said is refuse, the things that God has said is sinful and wicked and abominable, we will look at it either with trying to please ourselves or trying to please the world around us, maybe peer pressure a little bit, and say, well, it's not actually bad. This is actually good. And we start calling evil good and good evil, right? So what right do we have to call something good or best whenever God has already determined that it's wicked? And so whenever we know what his word says, he's made it clear, right? Right. 
God made his word clear, his commands clear to Saul. He's made his commands, his word clear to us. We know what is good. We know what is right. We know what is acceptable before God. But we're still constantly tempted, especially in the world which we live in, to try to blur the lines a little bit, to try to call some of the things that God has said is wicked and say, well, I don't see anything wrong with it. We've, we've probably all been guilty of that from time to time. We know there's plenty of others that are out there. There's churches right now that are saying, well, I don't see anything wrong with this. We went by a, a Presbyterian church the other day. I can't remember where we were at. But the, the flag out front, had a, it had a rainbow flag on the thing. It said, everyone welcome. It was down in Dublin. But it was a cross. It was, the, it was a cross that yeah. was rainbowed. Yeah, a rainbowed <laughs> cross and it said, everyone welcome. Okay? Fuck God, obviously. <laughs> And so this is the idea, and this isn't throwing off on Presbyterians, just those ones. Yeah. Okay? But here's the idea is whenever we start uh, taking what God has said and reinterpreting it or trying to start making it fit in with our generation or our society or our culture or our preferences or our likes and saying, well, I know what the Bible says, but. Or I don't really think God meant that. Or I think it really meant this. We've probably read books, commentaries, heard preachers, different people say such things. But I think what it really means is, and we're taking our own lens to interpret it. And so whenever Saul and his people went out, God clearly said, get rid of it all. All of it is abominable to me. And they said, well, this isn't abominable. And they take God off the throne and they put themselves on the throne. They say, God is wrong and I am right. Or I don't care what God has to say. I have vetoed what God says, right? And so anyway, as soon as that happened, verse 10, Samuel doesn't have to uh, come to find Saul to, to, to find out. Samuel's walking with God. Right. Even though the people have rejected him, God has not. And he's walking with God. He has a close relationship with God. I believe he is a friend of God. And God comes to him and says, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he hath turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. So God comes to Samuel and says, He didn't pass the test. I gave him another chance, and he messed up again. Now, in verse 11 it says, It repenteth me. And then if we go on down to... Uh, verse number 29, it says, And the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. And some people look at that and they think that there is a contradiction in the Bible. Because God said he repents, and then Samuel says God's not a man that he should repent. Not a contradiction? Mm-hmm. Okay. So from man's perspective, God changed his mind. Right? Sam, or God chose Saul, now God rejected Saul, so God changed his mind from man's perspective. right? And so as you're looking at verse number 11, this is the thought behind it, is that a lot of times in the Old Testament scriptures that it is talking about God from the way that he appears to man. Okay, God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. God knew what Saul was going to become. He knew what... Saul was going to do. But whenever he chose Saul, he also told Saul, if you follow me, 
if you obey me, if you lead according to my commands, then I will prosper you and you shall have, uh, you know, your family shall ring. And so he said, if you do this, then you're going to continue. If you don't, then I'm going to get rid of you and put someone else in. When God already knew that who was coming next, right? And so God never changed his mind, but to men, it appeared that he changed his mind. When we come down to verse number 29, uh, this is Samuel telling, um, we'll go back to verse number 28. Samuel said unto him, the Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent for he is not a man that he should repent. Mm -hmm. And so Saul has just been told, God has taken your kingdom away and given it to someone else. You are no longer God's king. And God isn't going back on that. He's not changing his mind. So whenever God says something, he is not going to change his mind. He says that he's not going to lie. He can't lie. Mm -hmm. And if he says one thing and does another, then that's a lie. And that's what it's talking about in that verse in repenting. It's, okay, God has proclaimed this is what's going to happen, and it's going to happen, and you're not going to make him change it. Okay? So the first verse that it talked about him repenting, it is that, from man's perspective, God has went in a different direction. He's he's gone the same direction along, but from man's perspective, he's changed. But the second time, it's talking about that God is not going to go back on his word, he's not going to say one thing and do another. And so with um, the matter of Saul, he was consistent all the way along. He didn't repent. He didn't change his mind. He didn't lie. He said, Saul, you're going to be king as long as I'm your king. And whenever Saul proved that God wasn't his king, he was no longer God's king. Okay? And he was no longer Israel's king. Okay. So that was just a little side note. I wanted to address that. But anyway, going back to what we were talking about here, um, Samuel found out from God directly that Saul had messed up, that Saul had disobeyed him. And did you catch Samuel's response to this? Did you look at the end of verse number 11? It grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Now think about what all this means. Samuel was their representative to God. Samuel was their leader. In effect, Samuel had been their king in the same capacity as what Saul was here. And they rejected him. They spoke against his children. They chose Saul over him, right? Saul repeatedly disrespected him. But we see Samuel's response to Saul being disinherited. Mm -hmm. And he was grieved, and he cried out to God all night long. What would be our response in that circumstance? I think more than likely most of us would be like, well, I saw that one coming, God. I knew he was a loser. Right? We would glory... In their downfall, we would glory in it and say, yeah, we saw that one coming. He's, this has been coming for a while. But uh, Samuel loved Saul. He loved Israel. 
And he wanted to see both of them succeed. They may have rejected him. They may have rejected his family, but he still loved them. And so he was still praying for their good. He was still hoping for their good. He was still desiring their good. And I think that's a, a, a great lesson for us in how we should respond because most likely if we were Samuel, we would consider Saul an enemy. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, he's at least an ineffective leader. And look at how we treat politics, politicians that don't align with our values and our views. I know just being an American whenever, you know, Obama was elected or Biden was, all the jokes and all the ways that we mocked and ridiculed them, right? And I know Ireland's no different. We still have uh, mocking and ridiculing of political leaders here, right? Mm -hmm. And so Saul was a bad politician. Mm -hmm. He was a corrupt politician, and yet Samuel mourned. He was grieved. And he lamented over this. And he cried out to God and begged God on behalf of his nation and his king. It's a bit convicting. But anyway, um, but verse number 12, Samuel rose to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place and is going about and passed on and going down to Gilgal. Do y'all catch anything strange about that verse? Anything at all? <laughs> well, I don't think he ever went to sleep, but no, that's that's not what I'm looking at here. Um did Samuel move anywhere? From the time that he talked to Saul? He gave Saul orders. Saul supposedly carried those orders out, right? And after you carried out the orders, what would be the natural response? What would be the next step? To report back to Samuel, right? And Samuel had to go looking for him. So that gives me the idea that most likely Saul knew he messed up. Right? So Samuel comes to him. He says, go destroy the Amalekites. And Samuel's in one place. The battle's over. Saul never shows up. God says, Saul didn't show up because Saul didn't obey. So tomorrow you need to go look for Saul. God doesn't tell him where to find him. And so Samuel sets out to find Saul, and he runs into someone and asks about Saul. And the person he asks says that Saul came to Carmel, and he set him up a place. What that means is Saul set up a memorial of this great victory that he just had. He set up him a place. So this is him standing before all of his men saying, look at what I did. Look at the great victory that I have. And he set up a memorial to his great victory. Okay? In Mount Carmel. And then he went to Gilgal. Gilgal is where he was uh, confirmed as king. Whenever all the people came together and they anointed him as king and they, they accepted him as their king. And so he went down there 
And it seems to be that this was him tooting his own horn. This was him being seen of the people, of him showing his leadership, of him saying, look at the victory that we won. Or not we, look at the victory that I have won. Right? And so whenever Samuel comes to him in verse number 13, Saul cries to him and says, Blessed be the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. That's his greeting for Samuel. And Samuel just shakes his head and says, you are so full of it. Right? And his, his classic response in verse 14, Samuel says, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Numbers chapter 32, verse 23 says, Be sure your sins will find you out. And I can just imagine as soon as Saul comes out to Samuel, and he says, I did everything God said to do. And about that time, you hear a sheep mm-hmm. and an ox. Tell him on him. It's like Peter with the rooster crowing. And Samuel says, if you obey, then why do I hear all these animals? Right. And Saul starts his excuses. That's like the marker of Saul's time as a king is constantly messing up and blaming everyone else. And that is a mark of an ineffective leader or of a poor leader, right? Of not taking responsibility because a true leader, the buck stops with them. And so whenever he says, what means the sound of these animals around us? Saul said, they brought them back from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord. Now, before we saw in verse number nine, Saul and the people saved the best. Now, as he's standing before Samuel, he says they and the people did these things. Oh, and by the way, they had good intentions why they disobeyed God. They disobeyed God so they could offer these up as a sacrifice. Who thinks they were actually going to sacrifice? This was like his his way out. He's like, oh, we saved the best to sacrifice, when in reality it seems as if they wanted them for their own wealth, for their own riches, right? And so anyway, he says, we saved the best to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. We find this twice in this chapter. Down verse number 21, the Lord thy God. Saul doesn't claim God as being his God. He's looking at Samuel and he's saying, we did it for the Lord thy God. Now that might seem like something small or insignificant, but even if we follow the life of Jacob, and that would be a, an interesting one, uh, as you follow the life of Jacob, constantly God is the God of his fathers. The God of his fathers. The God of uh, uh, Abraham and Isaac and all of that. And there is a turning point that takes place in Jacob's life whenever he becomes my God. Correct. And that's a huge difference in a person's life. It's got to go from being the God of the church the pastor's God, my parents' God. It's got to be my God. Right. And it seems like it never became personal with Saul. And he continues projecting this and saying, well, you know, I'm just doing this, but it's your God. 
not my God. So anyway, continuing on with this, we saved the best, we utterly destroyed the rest. And verse 16, Samuel says, just hold on for just a minute. I want to tell you what God has told me. And so verse number 17, when thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou made not, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over, over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? So he said, Whenever you were little in your sight, God chose you to be king. Now that you have become prided up and arrogant and boastful, and you think you know better than God, you went out after the Amalekites and you kept the best for yourself. Whoever says you flew on the spoil, it's not you saved it for a sacrifice for your God, you took it for yourself. And so he told him that he sinned, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. In verse 20, Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Even after all of this, the evidence is there, the sheep, the oxen, all those things. He's blaming other people. He's tried to avoid Samuel, and he's still claiming his innocence. And we find twice that he said that he has done everything that God told him to do. And this gives us a little bit of insight into the human experience. We can easily be blinded to our own mistakes, our own flaws. Sam, or excuse me, Saul may have very well thought that he had obeyed God. In his mind, I think he did. He went out, he destroyed the Malachites, he kept the best because, you know, waste not. It'd be a sin to destroy all these oxen and sheep because, hey, they're not sinful. It was the people that were sinful. So it would be a waste. And so I went out, I obeyed God, I did good. You should be congratulating me. Why are you giving me a hard time? We can be blind to our own faults and our own failures. This is one reason why it is important that we have people in our lives that we're accountable to. This is why it's important that we are able to be corrected, why it's important that we're able to be confronted, because it is very easy for us to have blind spots. It's easy for us to have things that we don't see, things, sins that creep into our lives where they're obvious to God and they're obvious to probably most people around us, but we completely miss them. And a lot of times we end up facing the consequences of our sins that other people would have warned us about if we would have given them license to do so or if we would have listened to them. And we end up facing a lot of consequences because we don't allow anyone in to that place where they can speak into those things because of our pride. And so we go on forward thinking we're doing just fine when in reality uh, we're doing like Saul here and we have partial obedience. We have uh, uh, a sense of righteousness, but it's not true. It's not real. And so he's still blinded to his sins. He says, uh, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag, the king of the Amal- of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Now, every time I read that, I get kind of aggravated. 
because Samuel comes to him. He says, why did you sin? Why did you do wicked before the Lord? He says, I did exactly what God told me to do. I went out and destroyed all of Amalek and I brought King Agag alive. It's like that would be the one thing not to say at that point in time. Because God has told him to kill all of the people. I did exactly what God said. And hey, look, here's Agag. With just one more proof. You thought the sheep and the oxen were bad. Look at this guy. And it says, uh, verse 20, I have obeyed, verse 21, but the people. Blame game again. Remember back in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve? Blame, 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 blame. Yeah. Okay. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the uh, chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. There he admits they should have been utterly destroyed mm-hmm. to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Okay. I did what God said. The people had this bright idea to save these things and sacrifice them, but I'm innocent. And Samuel, uh, and Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. So this is a pretty well-known passage, but I don't think we ever get... The, Quite the gravity of it, okay? What he's telling Saul there is that God would rather have obedience than ritual. Yeah. They'd rather have obedience than ritual. And what we end up doing as Christians is we go through the motions mm-hmm. and we end up, we go to church, we say memorized, dried up prayers, we read through our Bible just to check it off at the end of the day, we give a little bit of money, we go through all the motions and we We think that we are doing good as if we're doing God a favor because of all of the religious acts that we're doing when our heart is far from God. Okay? And even the things that we are doing, we're doing for the wrong reasons. And so Saul said, I'm going to offer up these sacrifices. And Samuel says, God would have rather you obeyed than to give sacrifices. And so in our Christian lives, we go through all of these sometimes extravagant ways of looking religious whenever God says, I don't care about all that. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I still think that if on there means if you don't love me, then I'm not worried about the commandments. Right? And that might sound a little bit extreme, but here's the deal. If your heart is not right with God, if you don't love him, if you're not doing it for the right reason, then it is all a show. Mm-hmm. It is hypocrisy. It is, you're play acting. Yeah. And there is one place, I think it's in Isaiah, where God tells the people, basically your sacrifices are a stench in my nostrils. Mm-hmm. I'm sick of all of these things because you go through all of the motions, but your heart is far from me. And so what we find here, what God wants for us, he's not wanting us to just be religious. He's not wanting us to go through the motions. 
He wants us to have a relationship with him, to actually love him, to value him, to look at his word and say, God is right, and I want to do the things that he has said in his word. I'm going to agree with him. I'm going to seek after him, and I'm going to follow after him, and then all the rest of those things are going to flow out of that. But we tend to get things the other way around. We get the cart before the horse. We try to do all the right actions without having the heart that's pulling us along. And so he tells him here plainly, God wants your obedience, not your religion. And so God has a delight in obedience, obeying the voice of the Lord. And it says, to obey is better than sacrifice, hearken than the fat of rams. Now, verse 23, whenever it talks about rebellion being like witchcraft. Have you ever caught what the connection between the two of those are? That's what we tend to think. One's just as bad as the other. We put them on an equal footing. Okay. But in reality here, it's not just that one's as bad as the other. It's one is the same as the other. Okay? Because whenever we are in rebellion, we have a decision that we're making. Are we going to do what God would have us to do? Is God going to be in control or is Satan going to be in control, right? Mm -hmm. So whenever we rebel against God, we are following Satan. We're allowing Satan to be in control. What is witchcraft? When Satan takes control of someone. So it says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So whenever you are uh, going with the devil, whenever you're rebelling against God, you say, well, I'm not participating in black magic and witchcraft. You're doing the same thing that they're doing. Right? And so he says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And then it says and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Okay? Same thing again, right? And so stubbornness is the same as idolatry. And whenever it's talking about stubbornness, it's talking about self-will. Okay? I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I am God. I have set myself as an idol. And so he says, rebellion equals witchcraft. Stubbornness. And this isn't just sticking to your convictions. This is, I don't care what anyone says. I don't care what anyone does. I don't care what the truth is. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm setting myself up. So stubbornness is idolatry. You have taken God off the throne. You've put yourself where he belongs. And this is what happened to Saul. He says, you're guilty of witchcraft. Give him a little bit longer. He's going to consult with the witch of Endor. But anyway, rebellion equals witchcraft. Stubbornness equals idolatry. And so he says, you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king. And so this is it. He said, you're going to no longer have an issue after you whenever he messed up the first time, right? But he says, now your kingdom stops today. He's going to continue on the the throne for a little bit, but he no longer has the power of God. He no longer has God's help. He no longer has God's assistance. And God basically just turns him over to his own devices. He's allowed rebellion to come in, and then the devil attacks that because rebellion is an open door for Satan. 
And so now we're going to find that in the next chapter that Satan comes in with an evil spirit and troubles Saul. David has to come in and play with his harp and calm down and soothe the, the savage beast, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay, I need to hurry up here. Um, so after judgment has been levied against him and says, God has rejected you from being king, now Saul changes his tune. Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned. It's been everybody else all along. Now he says, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, he was doing good for a minute and then he started blaming. He admitted that he sinned, but he blamed it on everyone else. But here's the thing. He admitted that he was more afraid of the people than he was of God. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man worketh a snare. And so that's what ends up happening is whenever you are more concerned about what everybody else thinks and what God thinks, you're going to end up doing things that go against the word of God and the will of God. And so we can't allow men to dictate and the fear of men to dictate whether or not we're going to obey God. Right. And that is something that's extremely difficult because we are constantly around people. There's all kinds of pressures that are on us but at the end of the day, we have to know what God's word says and be determined in our own heart, in our own mind, that it doesn't matter if I stand alone, I'm going to stand on God's word. We see Daniel and his three friends as an example, right? But they are in the minority. But it takes them determining ahead of time that they're going to follow God, they're going to obey God, rather than waiting until the trial comes, right? But Saul, all the way through, he is concerned about how he appears to everyone else, what everybody else thinks of him, about showing up like he's the winner, showing up like he's the one that had the idea, that he's the one that brought the victory, that he obeyed God, that he uh, beat the Amalekites, that he was over the king of Agag and was better than Agag, all these different things. He wanted to appear this way before everyone else, and God was just an afterthought. And so verse number 25, Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin, and turn again to me, that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And so he pleads to Samuel to pardon him. He doesn't look to God to pardon him. He sinned against God. He's looking for Samuel's forgiveness, Right? But we're going to find out that his whole angle here was insincere. Samuel turns away from him in uh, verse number 27, and Saul grabs a hold of Samuel's clothes and rips his clothes, and Samuel looks back at him and says, just like you ripped my clothes, God has ripped the kingdom away from you. Okay? And it says that he's given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. So for someone as proud as what Saul is, imagine the sting of this. God has ripped the kingdom away and he's given it to someone who is better than you. And Saul will be like, but I'm the king. Not anymore. And God's given it to someone better than you. And this is where in verse 29 uh, that he says that God won't lie or repent. So basically he says what is done is done. You're not going to beg. You're not going to make him go back. It is done. And so verse 30, then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now. 
This is where we get Saul's true heart in, okay? He says, honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. Once again, the Lord thy God. So after all of this, the truth comes out. God has said, I rejected you from being king. Then he says, oh, I messed up. He's still blaming people. And he says, come back with me, Samuel. Be seen with me. We're going to make a sacrifice. We're going to worship the Lord. And we're going to do this as a show in front of all the people so they don't realize how royally that I messed up and that I'm no longer king. He is still concerned about what everybody thinks about him. He's still trying to put on a show. He's still trying to be an actor. He's still trying to use God for his own benefit. He's still trying to use Samuel as a pawn in his scheme. And so he says, Samuel, come back. Be seen worshiping God with me. Act like you approve of it. Act like I'm accepted before God. Act like everything's okay. So for the sake of the people, right? So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Why Samuel went back, no one knows. But he did. Part of it is because of what he has to do here in a minute, I guess. Then said Samuel, bring ye hither to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag into pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so in this last act that Samuel did, is he went back, they offered up their offering because they had all these animals that were meant to be destroyed, right? So Samuel comes back and says, okay, kill all the animals that you said that you're going to sacrifice. We'll get rid of those. So they did. And he says, now we have the matter of Agag. And so he brings Agag out. Agag's begging for his life. And remember, this is in sight of all of the people. And so essentially what's going on here is Saul is getting reprimanded by God and Samuel in front of all the people. And so him killing Agag is showing all the people that Saul didn't obey, that Saul messed up. And it was a testimony to Agag, a testimony to Saul, testimony to all the people that your leader didn't obey God. And now Samuel, God's representative, has to come and clean up the mess. And so now we're going to sacrifice. Now we're going to kill Agag. And then I'm going to hit the road and I'm not going to be involved with this guy anymore because God's not involved with him anymore. Okay? And so that was the downfall of Saul. That was the end of him. So God has removed his spirit from him. He's removed his blessing from him. And Saul is now just awaiting until David is ready to assume the throne. That's it. So we come to chapter number 16, and I'm not getting into it tonight, okay? We come to chapter 16, and David is going to be contrasted with Saul. Saul all along was concerned about what men thought of him. He was constantly the one that was like the children of Israel. That was the one that they would choose. That was the one that represented them, right? And David is going to be the man that God chooses, a man after God's own heart that doesn't fit 
Israel's expectations or their desires, but he does God's. Okay? One thing I'll point out real quick, just as a preview into next week, okay? If you think about David for just a minute, Samuel comes to uh, Jesse's house. He says, Jesse, I want you to bring your sons here. And one of them is going to be anointed king. We're all familiar with the story, right? And Jesse's response is to bring seven of his eight sons to Samuel. What does that say about Jesse? Okay. <laughs> okay, David was the youngest. He was with the sheep. He was keeping the sheep, okay? And so Samuel comes and he says, one of your sons is going to be king of Israel. And he doesn't even bother to go get David because even Jesse wouldn't have picked David to be king. He doesn't think like God thinks. And that's kind of the highlight of, uh, or the main point of chapter number 16 is if David wasn't the man that Samuel would have picked. He wasn't the man that Israel would have picked. He wasn't even the man his own dad would have picked. But he was the man that God picked. Because God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He doesn't look and see things as man sees things. He looks on the heart. So all the way through Saul's ministry, if you want to call it that, his kingdom or whatever, all the way through it, it was him doing it as man does it. Him seeing things as man sees it. Him looking on the outward appearance, him looking on the way that things appear, on the way that uh, he perceives things to be, and it being a total disaster, it being a complete mess. And that's the way most of us go through our lives is we try to rationalize, we try to measure it out, we try to do things the world's way, we try to do things the way that we think makes sense, we try to view God's word through our own messed up minds and try to justify our wants, our desires, our actions, rather than just submitting to a holy God and saying, God knows what's right, and I'm going to do what he says, regardless of what my heart says, regardless of what society says, regardless of what man tries to tell me, I'm going to do what he says, because See, the thing is, whenever we do things God's way, God can bless it. Right. Back at the, the verses there in uh, verse 22 and 23, whenever it talks about God not delighting in burnt offerings and sacrifices he does in obedience. In our minds, what we do, and I know I'm going back just a little bit, but in our minds, what we do is we look at the situation and we try to, to do it the way that's going to be an advantage to us. We try to bend the rules. We try to uh, justify certain things so that we can be profited by it in some way. Because Saul and his, his army, they said, we're going to become rich off the spoils. We're going to get the sheep. We're going to get the oxen. We're going to get all these things. But God says, I can profit you so much more through obedience right. than you can profit yourself through disobedience. Mm -hmm. And that is the lesson that we need to learn from Saul because David, all the way through his life, I know he makes mistakes, but he has fallen God all the way through, and God continually prospers him. He directs his steps. He guides him. He gives him the things that he uh, wants him to have. He makes it work. But Saul was trying to make it work himself, and it didn't work. 
And so if we're going throughout life and we're trying to justify bending the rules and cutting corners and disobeying God, thinking that we'll come out ahead, we never will. But if we do things contrary to the way that the world says, contrary to the way that even our minds think, but in line with God's word, God will bless our obedience far more than he ever blesses anything else that we do disobediently. More than we can bless ourselves in disobedience. Right. Anyone have any questions or comments tonight? What I've always found very sobering about this, and all the passages is, you know, talking about the, the uh, destruction of the uh, Amalekites. It's just, it's such a sobering thing to think that sin is so grievous to the Lord that He will actually wipe out an entire people group. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the problems that some people have in coming to God. You know, and it's it's a lack of understanding of sin. And, mm -hmm. And something else that people never really quite grasp is that his judgment always is tempered in mercy. Because if you think about it with the Amalekites, if he allowed them to continue, sin is not just uh, something that is repulsive to God. God is repulsed by it because of its effect on us as well. And so in order for him to allow them to continue in that state perpetually, Generation after generation after generation, it's just more and more people to live oppressed, wicked lives and go off into an eternal hell. Mm -hmm. And so God cuts it short. Uh, that was one thing that hit me with the story of Noah and the ark. Mm -hmm. Okay, Because people say, God wiped out the whole world. It's because none of them were righteous. And God's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. All of them were only getting more and more wicked by the generation. And so if he wouldn't have wiped them out and took the one righteous family to repopulate the earth, then the entire world would have been wicked whenever Noah and his family died. And it would have just went on for generation after generation with no hope, with no preacher of righteousness, with getting more and more wicked, depraved, and everyone going to hell. And so God was stopping it short. And so it was mercy. And that might seem a little bit messed up in our minds to try to say, okay, God wiping out an entire nation or an entire planet is mercy. But if you have an eternal mindset, if you see past this globe, right, you realize there's a bigger picture to it. And so, yeah, he ended all of their lives but they're eternal beings. And so he calls there to not be generation after generation of eternal beings being born just to go to hell. Right. So yeah, great thoughts on that. But it is sober. And it makes us wonder in the state of the world today, as it becomes more and more ungodly, where that cutoff point is. Anything else? Okay, let's bring you go ahead and wrap up. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we do thank you so much for uh, just all the examples that we have in Scripture that we can learn from. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us, Lord, to take these uh, 
these challenges from the, the life of Saul as he was constantly being uh, tossed about by man's opinion and by his own, his own heart and his own flesh. Lord, help us, Lord, to follow your word, follow your will, come what may. Help us determine to do what's right, even if uh, no one else is doing it. Lord, for we know that we're we're much better off that you can you can bless us so much more in our obedience, Lord, than we or the world can in our disobedience. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all you do and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.